And now, a Breakthrough Basketball original podcast, The Jim Huber Show. After basketball, his dream is to become a rodeo clown. Jim Huber. Hey, everybody. Oh, it is hard work being this good. I was like, ow. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a, a big choo-choo train. We join the Jim Huber Show, already in progress. I did that with not having any type of medication. <laughs> Jimmy, who you got on the big podcast today for us? Coach Danny Miles. Legendary coach, one of the biggest winners of all time. Well, have you ever thought about one in a thousand games? I, I can't imagine. Four individuals that have done that, and he actually has won three national championships. Hey, Coach, are you there? Yes, I am. Now, when you went to Oregon Tech originally, you were going to be the football coach, right? I was hired as an assistant football, basketball, baseball. I played three sports in college, and, and I, I, I loved all three sports, and I could have gone either, any direction as far as I, I always thought I'd be a college football coach, and that's I wanted to be a D1 football coach. And As it turned out, uh, after my first year, uh, uh, we're, in fact, we're 0-9 in football, 1-21 in basketball, and 3-23 and in baseball in the three sports as an assistant. The next year, they hired me as head baseball, head basketball, and I was offensive coordinator in football, and I did that for 13 years. What I'm amazed about, Coach, is you know I, I've experienced in NAI basketball, NAI Division II, which Oregon Tech, the level you've been at, and you know the schools I've been involved with, the limited resources that you have, and you get complaints from coaches like, well, we don't have scholarship money, or we don't have this type of resource, whatever it is, but... It sounds like you made the best of what you had and made big time to where you're at to achieve a thousand victories over that and that three national championships. How did you do it with the limited resources? Well, you know, first uh, first 21 years we were Division One in EI because there's just only that one division. And uh, I remember the first time we went back to the nationals. My third year we we won 25 or fourth year, excuse me, and. And uh, we only had one scholarship, and we played Gardner-Webb with John Drew and went on playing the NBA, had a great NBA career, uh, and got thumped pretty good. But, you know, uh, what I did when I first started, I, I decided to write to everybody in Street and Smith that wasn't on the first, second, or third team All-American. And uh, I wrote six or 700 letters. And it was interesting, the guys I got uh, letters back from, uh, guys Ricky Sobers, guys Larry Keenan, uh, guys wrote back to me, and, my philosophy, if you don't ask the prettiest girl to dance, she's not going to dance with you. And, and so we got lucky on a few kids early, and, and uh, you know, uh, we won 11 games our first year, and then we won 15, then 25, and we got it going. Over the last 20-some years, it's been basically my guy sending me players. I don't think I had a home visit in the last 20 years. It was all ex-players, hey, coach, we got a guy that's an Oregon Tech guy. I want to send him to you, and, you know, we'd watch film and bring him in. What did you do to influence those individuals to come to your school to give you an opportunity? You know, we're like we had a 6'3 center from Chilbeau, J.C. that wasn't getting recruited by a lot of people. So I went after those kind of guys that were gifted guys, but people were afraid to go on. I had another kid who was All-American for me. People said the only place he could probably play is Oregon Tech because they'll probably recruit him. And, one coach said he'd probably be an All-American. He was, and he had one dunk. He's six-six guy. Had one dunk in in four years. He was our big man, and so it just you know. And I I'm a big guy about heart and quickness, and and if a guy was uh, quick and had a big heart, you know, uh, I thought we could play with most anybody. And then our defensive scheme, we were kind of running the uh, well, we call it the five-pack defense, but it was basically the you know the uh, 
you know, we'd switch ball screens a lot and sag, sag and, and, uh, you know, and, and a lot of people, of course, are doing that now. And uh, Kind so, of the pack line a little bit, yeah, how they're pack, doing it now pack, a little bit. Yeah, they call it the pack mm-hmm. line now. So, so, and we also had a tremendous matchup zone in, uh, in through the 70s. And uh, after Magic and then went, uh, Michigan State won in 79, everybody started to learn how to attack it and stuff. So we kind of went out of that a little bit. On the recruiting part, and you talked about it, like you find kids that have heart. How did you identify that? Did you give them like a, a test uh, that they had to take? Or is there certain things that you evaluated when you watched them? warm up or play or what did you do to find those kids that had the heart that that matched what you needed to have success in your program well you know i always i used to always uh, have a video from the off, uh, other side of the court i wanted to see our kids on the bench how they reacted to uh, situations also i always sat about eight rows behind the kids i was recruiting and didn't tell them i was coming and kind of watched them how they handled stuff on the you know on the bench when they weren't playing that type of thing and but i remember one time i i was in Mississippi with a football coach, and, and uh, we recruited. I went to Picayune, Mississippi, to Pearl River Junior College, and there was two really outstanding kids. This after I had about, well, we had uh, at one time we had three EOPs, which means we could get an out-state kid for in-state uh, money. So we went down to Mississippi, and the football coach and I both got some kids from there. But uh, you know, the uh, pretty good kids, and we had two big six-eight kids who were really talented. I thought they were low D one kids. And, I asked the coach, which one of these two guys would you take? Because I only had money for one. He said, I'd take the kid down at the other end of the floor. It was 6-3. And I said, why is that, coach? He said, well, he's got a he's got a heart twice as big as any of these guys. So I took him. He, he's all Northwest for us. And, and so that's, you know, that kind of kid, uh, I think a lot of times if you, if you talk to, uh, you might read about a kid that's really a big score and stuff, but you find out from the coaches a lot of time who, who would they take off their team and, and that's uh, how we got a lot of our kids. If you could go back and tell a young 25-year-old Danny Miles, starting out from everything you learned through the years to develop a successful program, what would you tell him? Well, you know, I, I had to learn uh, the hard way. I was coaching three sports. One thing, I have a lot of guys call me, especially football coaches, and I was coaching three sports. We had to be here at 7 in the morning and got home at 11 at night, and I – lost a marriage over it and my ex-wife and I are still good friends and and uh, think a lot of each other but I made a mistake and uh, and so one thing uh, you know they said you could never watch too much film when I was a young guy and and we did and uh, cost several guys on the football staff our marriages I learned from that I've never taken a video home since in the last 29 years with my uh, second wife and so that's one thing I think. Uh, make sure you keep have your priorities in order. And I came to Christ 15 years ago, and I, you know, the faith, family, friends is so important. And I didn't always have that in that order. And uh, but, you know, one thing I found too, I got two, and uh, I was really a coaches. I mean, a players coach. Then I got too wrapped up in winning, and uh, not that we don't all want to win, but. I learned by experience. I told my boys and my own sons that I think I could teach you. It took me 20 years to learn in a couple of years because I learned the hard way. And and so those are things that I've, I would tell young coaches is just make sure you have your priorities in order and, and that your family comes first and don't ever forget that. And The nice thing nowadays, too, is you don't have to watch four hours of film. All the stuff's broken down for you. 
which makes it a lot easier than the modern coach. Let's talk about some of the things that make the Hustle and Owls, by the way, best name in college basketball, great name, that makes the atmosphere there what it is. The sections that you have in the crowd that you guys created to make that gym special. Can you talk about that? One end we have uh, the senior section, and it's called uh, the Terrace because Crystal Terrace is pretty close to us. It's uh, older, uh, uh, older people, you know, live and stuff. And we usually have about 20, uh, 20 people come over and uh, uh, that are in their eighties or, or higher. And what's really been neat is the, is the women. Uh, a lot of times they didn't even go to high school games, but it gave them a chance, gives them a chance to get out and. And our kids, we eat over there with them sometimes and get to know them. And then uh, when they come to the games, they get there early, and our kids always go over and say hello to them. And so that's one section down at one end. And then behind our bench, we have the special needs kids, and uh, uh, it's really neat. We have probably 20, 25 to sit behind our bench and uh, have a great time. And uh, one of them is uh, a lot of times we've had them as honorary captains, and then we also play them every year, and they beat us 42 straight years now. <laughs> <laughs> Always the same score, but but it's uh, it's really a great environment. People, uh, we fill the place uh, for a lot of years, and, and uh, you know we have about 2,200 seats, but for a small college of you know uh, 3,500, 4,000, uh, that's pretty good. It's it's one thing, coach, to talk to your team about being the the best hustling team, or you know playing harder than the opponent. What did you do in practice to establish that, and what can you tell like a coach of some maybe successful type things that they can do um, to to get their players to play that way? Well, one thing is you know that, that keep it simple, stupid thing is you know we we have about six seven drills. I have a video out through Breakthrough Basketball, kind of shows our drills. And, uh, a couple of fast break drills. We have we usually only average about uh, less than eleven turnovers a game and average eighty points. We we hardly ever turn the ball over. We have some great footwork drills. We have a, what we call our breakdown drill that has 11 things in the motion offense that we try to teach. And by repetition, the kids get really good with their footwork. Um, so we work hard on that. We have a pride drill we finish practice with, which is uh, we want to be the best team in the country getting back on defense. And so that gives them something to relate to. Everything we do in practice is game speed. Uh, our shooting drills are, you know, a lot of footwork in that. And, and uh, so we try not to do a lot of talking in practice. We try to uh, uh, just go from one drill to the next after the kids understand, you know, our system and stuff. And we have a system that we we play at least ten players. And when we really had it going great, uh, we we uh, play uh, play ten or eleven kids a game. And if we graduate four, we we have you know seven guys move up that played some. And that's why we've been able to keep it, you know, uh, going pretty well. So. Our system, uh, we also, my assistant coaches, uh, they know when to substitute. We got it kind of worked out, scripted uh, when we're going to sub. How would you do that, though, scripting out? Would it be determined by certain minutes that they're playing, rotations, yeah, people yeah, together? Like our our uh, post, post lane guy, uh, one of my kids told me one time, Coach, when you played me 27 minutes a game, I wasn't as good as if you played me 24 because uh, I can run the lanes a lot harder in four minutes four-minute intervals, so he'd play the first, uh, third, and fifth uh, four-minute period, you know, and uh, that type of thing. So we got after a while, we, we'd really kind of know, uh, very few of our kids ever play over 33 minutes, and uh, one thing at our level, we don't have the TV timeouts and all those things, mm-hmm. 
I think at the D1 level, you can use five or six guys because they, they have a timeout, it seems like, every two or yeah. three minutes. So, but at our level, uh, I think uh, if you're going to run and play hard on defense and stuff, uh, our, our, our best guys play 32, 33, and, and then, you know, we have different. But kids are getting some time. They know they're going to play, and, and I think that, that helps uh, guys playing hard, too. Now tell us about, I know you talk about systems, you had a value point system. What is that about, and how was that affected within your program? Well, when uh, I first started coaching, I was a math minor in college and taught some math and stuff, but I always felt uh, in, back in the 60s, you know, if you even go back, you look at stats and Oscar Roberts and those guys, they they didn't do a real good job of keeping assists and, and steals and didn't even keep some of that stuff. And uh, But I always felt you know the guy that drew charges the guy that assist turnover ratio all these things are really important and i thought back in the old days the guy that scored a lot of points or a guy that got a lot of rebounds were the only ones that really got recognition and so i came up with a, a system uh, my first year coaching that we used ever since and uh, i thought it's really been good for us i could usually tell we have nine scrimmages before our first game we, we scrimmage about every after the first five days of practice we go about every fourth day before our first game, and we have a, a big time scrimmage or every three days with referees, the whole works, and it's really meaningful to the kids. And that gives nine games to really evaluate the kids. And then uh, what I do is bring them in after uh, the scrimmages and sit them down and we kind of go over you know, what they do, are doing right, what they're doing wrong, what they need to improve on, that type of thing. I had one kid uh, one time that played at 0.95, which wasn't very good, but we brought him in. Basically, uh, he's a great defender, a good shooter, but he, a very poor passer. And I just told him just make the average passes, keep working on it, but try not to thread the needle, that kind of thing, and clean that up. And he ended up playing one six six for his career for us. He was a great player, but he what he did, he, he did the things he did well, and 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 uh, tried not to do the things he didn't do as well. I I kind of compare it to bunting, and if a guy can't bunt, why have him bunt, you know, and stuff. And I feel the same way about entering the post. You know, he couldn't enter the ball of the post very well, so don't do it. You looked at some of the NBA players. You graded out some of them in your system. Who, who's the greatest VPS player of all time? Who's got the highest score? That's Magic. I think he's 2.09. John Stockton was like 206. And, uh, you know, there's uh, some, you know, LeBron, where I've been really impressed with LeBron in the last two or three years, he's – He's playing up in that uh, 175 and above is, is you know, super. And right. there's not a whole lot of guys in there. He's playing at that level now. He wasn't earlier. What and, about Steph? Have you do, have you looked at Steph to see, because he's known as a shooter and in your system, charges and rebounds and those things yeah. add up. What's he? He was, uh, seemed like, a, I think I did it this year, 152 or whatever, which is very, very good. One thing about the NBA, people love to watch certain kind of players play, like Allen Iverson and those kind of guys. But his his value points weren't real as good as you know some other guys. If so, someone listening wants to learn the system, where do they buy a, a you know a book, a video? What's available out there? Well, Breakthrough Basketball's got our our system from about three years ago. I had a video out, and still people are still buying it. Danny Miles value point system with Breakthrough Basketball. Sounds like an MBA. I ought to be calling you general manager and pay you consulting <laughs> well, fees to this get guy, that. Danny, I mean, seriously. he gets credit for being Moneyball before Moneyball. I, I know. I mean, so if I was yeah. an MBA general manager, I'd be calling up being like, hey, what, what consulting fee can we get you? Because think about the money they pay these free agents, and they might be getting the wrong player that might not be a good fit for the team, and they want to win. So they, they need well, to be why, calling you. Yeah, 
that's what I feel. I, I, uh, in fact, I went down. I went to down to a major college coach one time, and and he asked me to do his value points. So I did, did his value points, and he said, "What? Where are we lacking?" I said, "Well, with the team that's winning your league, you guys are tied with them defensively. You're doing a super job." except they're kicking your tail on offense, and the, the big problem is your assist turnover ratio is like 400 to 398 to 406. And I said, if you knock that, turn that around to where it's about 1.4 to 1, you know, and so let's say 400 assists to, uh, you know, 300, 300 turnovers, uh, you're going to win five, six, seven more games. And all of a sudden, they started doing that. They cleaned up their turnover situation. They're battling for the championship every year. And I think it. I've had a lot of coaches. I went to Australia one time and showed the system to a coach, and I said, "You need to put this guy, this guy, in the lineup. He's not as big a scorer, but he's a, he'll play at one seven five, one eight zero as your point guard." And they end up winning the league after I left with a change. And, and uh, but it's been, you know, I, I'm a tr- tremendous believer in. It. A lot of the guys have gone to my system. Uh, there's some national teams have used it. And, I coach over in France uh, in the summers, and all those guys use it, and they've had really great success. So do you use that in practices and games? you use it in both? We, use it, we do it in our scrimmages, and we really break down the video. Because one thing, and uh, we have to use the opponent's uh, stats. You know, So I call it our modified stats or the stats that you get after a ball game and or put on your season stats. And then, But um, the VPS for us is we break down – all the scrimmages, and if there's a block charge, for example, in a game and it should have been called the other way, we'll make that change so it won't hurt the kid. But during the games themselves, we have to go with straight stats that are given to us by our opponents and stuff and with our, our, our stats from the games. But um, but it, it really tells us an awful lot who should get the play in time and that type of stuff. Well, that helps, too, with, you know, when parents and players get upset with lack of playing time or whatever. That gives you kind of statistics and numbers to kind of show them, right, to help with that. Well, see, that's why I feel I think one thing. We've, I remember we've had kids come in, and one-on-one they could pretty much beat everybody on the team, uh, but they just, just, just kill you in a ball game because they shoot too much and they're out of control. And I think to sell the kids on the fact that they, a lot of the kids think because a kid can dunk and do all this stuff that he's the best player on the team, they find out that he, he isn't and through the system. Let's go back in the time machine, Coach. Victory 900 earned you something special at Oregon Tech. He finally got his own parking space. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me a car or something. Or well, airplane. they named the, the court is Danny Miles Court, but he finally got the parking space on. Did they put a car in there, too, in the parking space? No. No, no car, but uh, I'll tell you, it's, uh, uh, it's kind of funny. The guys, uh, I lost my keys one time. I, I had three concussions, pretty good concussions in football, and I was worried, you know, I was kind of worried about the CTE stuff, you know, after watching concussion. And so the guys. I came to school a couple of times, and one day I was one 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 parking spot over, and I walked out. And I said, "Gosh, how could I have done that?" And the next day I was one spot over the other way, and I thought it was about time I better go see the doctor because I wasn't even parking in my own spot. You're you know? talking to your wife. You're saying, "Hey, something's wrong, right?" <laughs> there's there's something wrong. Yeah. So <clears throat> I finally figured out the coaches did it to me, but but you fired him. You fired him the next day, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, that was a nice uh, nice thing. Uh, uh, have a, my own space finally. What game haunts you? We're playing Northwest Nazarene, a very good ball club on their court. We have a four-point lead with four seconds to go, and we lost. And uh, 
missed the free throw. I, I told, I'd call the timeout, tell everybody to get back, don't be within 20 feet of anybody. Well, this one kid was in within two feet, and the guy shoots a 40-footer, goes in, they call a foul on him. And uh, and looking at the film, he wasn't that close to him. You know, I mean, he was, there was definite distance. There wasn't a foul, but they called it, and he shouldn't. But he shouldn't have been close. And then they had an 84 percent foul shooter went up to to the line, sh- shot the ball, it barely hit the front of him, went straight down. They got the rebound, put it in, and we got beat. And it was the worst loss in history. You know, just uh, there's no way you could lose that, but we did. Oh. Coach, what can you tell? Like, okay, you have a worse loss like that. I remember when I was a young coach where. You know, you, you take the losses very personal, and you can get emotional and upset. What can you tell a coach in, in you know, difficult losses? How should you handle it going in and talking to your team, letting your emotions settle down? What should they do in those moments? Well, what I've always done, whether we win or lose, it's always been about effort, execution, and intensity. We call them the three E's, although one of them is spelled with an I. And... Uh, but if they're doing that, I can be happy. And especially my last 20-some years of coaching, uh, uh, and I came to Christ 15 years ago, uh, was a big, really a big, uh, most important decision in my life. And, and uh, But uh, I, it was all about effort. And, uh, you know, that, I remember going in after that game. That was quite a few years before. But, you know, I was, I was just sick. I, I was playing on myself. I should have got the guy out. Uh, the the shot before that that made the mistake he was an all-american but he wasn't real sharp sometimes and and that was my fault but uh <clears throat> i don't know it just uh, i i've always been tr- consistent wins or losses uh how i talk to the kids after the game and and there's only one or two games a year usually i'm disappointed with the effort execution and so um, that made it simple. The last 15 years you talk about coming to Christ and how that made a difference. Were you a little different in how you build relationships with your players at that point? I think what helped there is I, I, I used to cuss a little bit. I, I didn't cuss anymore after that. And I, I asked the players, uh, guys, I appreciate there's no profanity and I'm not going to stop practice over it. But I just And what I found out was what what in important mentor we are to young people and uh, I found the kids didn't swear because I didn't swear and uh, also I found that uh, going to church uh, and stuff a lot of my kids started going to church I had a couple kids change faith and I I found out what important mentor we are as coaches and we're we're fathers to a lot of these kids that don't have fathers and and maybe to some that have fathers we're a father figure because we spend more time with them probably than their parents do in that we spend two hours of quality time at least a day without even counting the times they come in the office and talk and stuff. So uh, that was that was so important. And uh, uh, the other thing I I did after I came to Christ, I was going to enjoy road trips. I never those are usually the times you lose games. And uh, I decided I was going to enjoy all the road trips. And I only had one technical in my last 21 years. And uh, how did you get that one? I got my last year, and I couldn't believe it. They gave it to me, and and uh, and, uh, and later on, the other two refs came over and apologized for him, and he came over and apologized later. But uh, I just I, I popped off a little bit, but not nothing I'd thought uh, uh, deserved that. But uh, I shouldn't have popped off, so that's the way it goes. Talk about super fan Stevie and describe him and what his role was, and maybe what he taught you in the program and the guys. 
Well, Stevie was a young man I met when uh, 40-some, well, my first year coaching, and we used to run together. He weighed 129 pounds, and we'd run. Went, one time we ran a 14-mile run together, and he was a special needs uh, kid. And then uh, I coached in high school a couple of years, and I came back, and when I started coaching up there, he started coming up every day. And uh, he'd watch Perry Mason uh, come, in, uh, come on 11 o'clock in the latter years. Uh, in Jeopardy, right? In Jeopardy, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yeah he's autistic, right? He's really good with yeah. numbers and stats. Oh, he's, and Yeah, he's unbelievable. So uh, the last few years, his name was on my door as one of the assistant coaches, but he always sit out in the lobby and, and uh, took him home probably a thousand times. But he now weighs about three three bills, so he's a little bit bigger than he used to be. And... and uh, but he, he he's he's you know a lot of teams it's interesting sports really draws a lot of those those uh, young people to to programs and, and a lot of a lot of uh, programs have kids like that and they're uh, and which is really special so but Stevie is is one of a kind and he uh, he's got a tremendous he reads our programs before they go out each week and he, he picks up any mistakes he's really sharp in those kind of ways and well you, when you think of special needs kids you find them happy great attitudes certain characteristics they have that are just positive what do you feel like when you over the years if you go back and recruiting kids what would you look for in a kid that you feel like is very important similar to what stevie has within him that you'd want to recruit to your program it's interesting you know i think our kids learn so much that we have that night we play the special needs kids but i think we find out it, it's almost more important for our kids and what's really interesting to me is how some kids gravitate so easily to those young people and and other kids at first are a little bit shy or afraid to get involved with them and then pretty soon after three or four years or maybe after a year boy they're they really see, see them in a different light and i think that's what's special is uh integrating them into our in our to our basketball family and stuff and so I think it's a win-win for the, the kids that are the normal kids and also the autistic kids. Does Stevie still shoot the free throws every year? Because he used to – what was it? He would travel with you guys if he hit a certain yeah, amount of free throws? He had to make six out of ten to be able to go to Southern Oregon on a road trip. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, every so year. Up there every year, and so he gets up there, and we have the whole team circle around him. And so if he shoots and misses his – uh, we don't start until he hits his first one. You give him some mulligans. You start right? on him, yeah, a few right. mulligans. A few mulligans, and then, then after he shoots, if he get, he doesn't make six, and then I said, okay, Steve, it's going to be a vote now. So cover your eyes. So he covers his eye. Of course, he's got his fingers split a little bit so he can see, and then the team votes whether he gets to go or not. And uh, so, have, have they ever uh, given the thumbs down or? No, they always no. give him, of course, always raise their hand. You can see him smiling, you know, with his eyes covered. That's awesome. So he, he, he makes a trip every time. That is so cool. And you, uh, we have something in common, Coach. I know you're a history buff, and I know you read a lot about the Kennedy assassination. So who did it? Well, I'll tell you what. I think there's there was more than one shooter. I had a I had a guy that lived right next to me that was – that. Uh, was that's the reason I got involved, and in. he he was subpoenaed by Garrison from New Orleans. Jim Garrison. Yeah. See, I know all this, Jim. You, you <laughs> made this may turn into about a three-hour podcast. No, my, my, I know my mom loves Kennedys and following that. So, so he was subpoenaed in that case. And what did, what do you what did you learn from him? Well, uh, the guy he disappeared for, and then finally they found him like 15 years later. But he was a murderer from Angola prison. It was very interesting stuff. He, uh, I was even. 
even asked to do because I really researched it quite a bit because of the I was my neighbor, and I was asked to do a uh, they wanted to be be on a show with Madeline Brown, who's LBJ's mistress, and another guy who supposedly was up on Stimmons Freeway. And I was told by my attorney not to get involved with it. You know, back that was several years ago. So, but uh, a lot of those witnesses <laughs> disappeared. Coach, you <laughs> he, know, he might have been coaching for that hey, long. Might have, might have been about five hundred victories. Yeah, and we don't know where say. the hell Danny went. <laughs> you know. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Talk about your man cave and the, some of the stuff that's in your man cave. Because uh, over your career, you've talked to presidents and just ever. What's your most valuable thing in your man cave? got a couple letters from the presidents uh united states and they're both worth like two thousand dollars a piece and some of those kind of things which so, which presidents who'd you who'd you hear from it was uh george bush and and uh and and uh, president clinton well they write you a letter about was it congratulating yeah. you on the thousand was for 800 wins and ninth the other one for 900 wins or something like that wow very nice letters i don't know and they even personalized it and spelled my wife's name right and it was j-u-d-i-e and you know so somebody had to give him some stuff so and judy said when she met you that your your head changes now you and jim have the same <laughs> haircut coach yeah, but yeah. she said that hey, your we, head, we look really good coach miles she said your head and your players say that they can one time you lost your voice in a game and they were they were reading you by the color that your head changes judy said it went beet red when you first met uh yeah i get Get embarrassed, or I or uh, I get fired up, or whatever. So you get that, Jim? I've no, never they, seen. They say with me, Coach Miles, I get like a vein. <laughs> I get this vein like popping up in, in the bet. middle. I don't know if I need a vein operation or <laughs> what it is. Coach. Coach changes colors, and Jim gets a vein. Yeah, oh, that'd be a great combination. Yeah. yeah. Coach, very interesting. I, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you so yeah, I'd much. like to. How can uh, NBA GMs, executives, get a hold uh, of you? NCAA big time programs get a hold of you to, for you to consult them? Just uh, call me. I'm now at Cascade Christian High School, Medford, Oregon. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, uh, like I said, I, I read, you know, you, you brought up about general managers and stuff. You know, I think Popovich really understands, I think his success is. I, I was I had a chance when Tony Parker was fourteen, I was over there to camp with him and and some of those guys and stuff and got to see a lot of players. But I I think the thing is he gets guys without big egos that you can sit a Tony Parker, you can sit a Manu. Uh, a Duncan or different guys and you know, down the stretch and have other guys if they're doing the job, do the job without getting their feelings hurt. And I think he's 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 so far ahead of a lot of guys. Now they're starting to catch up because they're figuring out he wins all the time. What's he doing? Same thing with uh, Warriors. These, you know, the Warriors. You take you, you take also uh, Belichick and football. Yeah. Those guys are doing something, and uh, and I think a lot of it is getting the right kind of person, right kind of uh, heart condition, and it doesn't change. I don't care if it's pros or or little kids. You get those guys that battle and don't care who gets the credit, you're pretty successful. When you saw Tony Parker at 14, did you look at him and be like, this kid's going to be a great NBA player? I came home told my players, there's a guy over there 14 years old could play for us right now. Wow. And uh, when he was, what, 19, he was with, uh, <clears throat> with San Antonio. But he was, he was special. Did he, you write a letter to Dirk Nowitzki and try to recruit him? Well, I went over there and talked to him personally. Uh, it turned out I had a coach from germany who uh came here one year and coached with me he's a he was our junior nice junior national coach in germany the next year he went with mike montgomery at stanford 
And so he told me about Dirk, Dirk Nowitzki. So uh, I went to Germany that summer and uh, met him. And Dirk was 17 and talked to him. He had that coach uh, that's always His been with mentor. him. His mentor was yeah. there and met him. But I ended up getting the two starting guards off the Würzburg team came and played for me. One of them one year and the, the following year the other one came over. They were both really uh, outstanding players for me, but by that time Dirk was already getting offered five million to play in Greece when he was seventeen. I think that. Did you tell him you had six scholarships and one was for him? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all, all six were for him. Get you a full ride. Well, that, definitely, when I talked to him by then, it was either Stanford or, or Cal, you know, rather than Oregon Tech. So. Well, I was wa- I was watching that documentary called "It's Perfect Shot." I think it is. I was watching on Saturday night about Dirk Nowitzki and his mentor. Holger is that yeah. his name. Holger. Holger. Did yeah. you did you meet him and talk to him and yes, see some of the I, workouts? He, well, he also taught him to play the violin, and uh, that he said it was very important in becoming a better basketball player. Well, they talk about the one of the individuals that Holger's with, uh, a gentleman there was from the United States, was a really good player. They talked about how jazz and music um, and how that relates to basketball, and they were going through the music part. But did you did you see any of his type of workouts he did with Dirk and pick anything up from that or? No, I, I saw one workout, what he was doing and stuff. I just all I really remember, it's been a long time ago, is just how well he shot for, and what, that's what impressed me about European basketball is, is those kids are all taught the guard skills too, and uh, you know, and those and you see in the NBA a lot, of those guys can most of all those big guys can pass, and a lot of them can shoot, you know, and and uh, where in the United States we kind of keep their back to the basket, used to anyway, and you know, and keep them inside all the time, but. Uh, it's not bad having a guy who can stick it from outside as a big kid. Coach Miles, thank you so much for your time, man. It was a great conversation. Yeah. I'd love to do a podcast with you of about four hours on the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> who was the neighbor? What was his? Can you tell me his name without yeah. getting us both uh, disappeared? Yeah, G. Clinton Wheat. Look it up. I'm going to look that up. And, I, I was buddies and, with Jesse Ventura. Coach, he'd get you in the hallway. He would talk to you for five to six hours about the Kennedy thing. You had to literally – people avoided Jesse in the hallway. <laughs> I got his book. I, got, I brought Jesse's book. Which one? Which one you got? Uh, uh, Democrits uh, and – Big paperback. And there's one – look up this too, Harold Doyle. Okay. And uh, he was my neighbor also. Uh, he was lived downtown, but he was one of the – Jeez, coach, the, what were you involved in? Where the <laughs> hell were you cow. living, Coach? He's in he the was, village. This is unbelievable. He's one of the three tramps they couldn't find. No, Harold Doyle. Yeah, and the other tramp was Woody Harrelson's father. They well, think no, not really. No, you don't uh, think so? No, it, that's that's who they thought it was. But it it was a look up Harold Doyle. Okay, and he, he's one of the three, and uh, E. Howard Hunt was one of the three. Correct, the CIA uh, spymaster. No, no, that's who they thought. They thought it was Hunt and Harrelson and one other guy. But right. It's, uh, I think it's Getney, uh, Doyle, and uh, gosh, I can't remember the other guy right now. But, Boy, but, I thought that looked like Woody Harrelson's dad because he's in prison for shooting a federal judge. Right. <laughs> Did you know that? He no. assassinated yeah, a that. federal judge. Yeah. 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 Well, listen to this. Uh, G. Clinton Wheat, he had a meeting at his house on Lafayette Street in L.A. Uh, about killing Kennedy. And, and there's one other, this just came up about three weeks ago. There's a guy named Keith Gilbert. He wrote me a letter and told me, uh, well, I got a letter that he wrote to the guy that did uh, the JFK movie. Um, Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone. And Gus Russo sent it to me from Frontline, sent me this letter. 
and he said, do, he said, do not share this with anybody. And this is when I was 25 years ago. So that's when the attorney said, don't mess with this stuff. And uh, because you know, a lot of people disappeared, you know. Yeah. So 2017 is when they're supposed to release a lot of stuff. And that's why I was always hoping I could live, live to be 72 so I could... Uh, maybe see some of this stuff yeah but. i got a feeling it's going to be delayed a little longer coach you know what i'm saying i would guess it would coach we got to get together you ever come to kansas city you call me i'll call jesse we'll get jesse up here and uh we'll hash it out okay <laughs> sound like jesse yeah john f kennedy's yep. uh, assassination you're not going to convince me he could make those shots why because i tried them and i'm an expert marksman he wasn't and I couldn't do them. I couldn't even work. The fastest I could work, the Manlitzer Carcano bolt, was eight and a half seconds. And they're telling me he got three shots off in six seconds with that bolt action piece of crap weapon. My mother, before she died, she had a big trunk. And when she died, in the bottom of that trunk, she had every Minneapolis paper of that weekend that John Kennedy was killed. And you know what was down in the bottom? Dallas police declare case closed. Now, Jesse, it's right in the paper. Jesse. Kennedy's killed on Friday. Ruby kills Oswald on Sunday. And the Dallas PD says the case is closed. They haven't interviewed a witness. There was no confession, but the case is closed. When a coup d'etat takes place, there can be no trial. This is the Jim Huber Project. Podcast. Whatever.